This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Joan Halifax. Joan Halifax is an anthropologist, Buddhist teacher, and writer. She founded the Ojai Foundation, an educational center, in 1979, and also Upaya, a Buddhist study center, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in 1990. In 1994, she created the project on being with dying as a way to train healthcare professionals in the contemplative care of the dying. Her books include The Human Encounter with Death, which she wrote with Stanislav Grof, Shamanic Voices, and The Fruitful Darkness, Reconnecting with the Body of the Earth. She's also written a book on being with dying, and With Sounds True has released a six-session audio series, Being with Dying, Contemplative Practices and Teachings. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, I spoke with Joan while she was at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., for a period of time working on a new model of compassion, a model which she shares with us in this discussion. We also talked about contemplative practices one can do at the bedside of a dying person and the greatest gift that we can give another person, the gift of no fear. Here's my conversation with Joan Halifax. Joan, I know that you've spent over 40 years working directly with dying people at the bedside and in many different capacities. And to begin with, I'm curious to hear a little bit from your personal direct experience. You know, often I've heard it said that when people are dying, that's when they review their life and that the common theme is that, you know, I wish I had invested more in my relationships, in loving. And I'm curious if that's what you've heard from people or what you've heard from people when they reflect on their lives, what the biggest themes are that people come up with. I wished I had done X, Y, Z. What is it? You know, I I think that's true on one level, but I think... um you know, on, on a, another level, from a very pragmatic perspective, um, most people who have uh, a life-limiting illness are, frankly, more concerned about uh, things that are more practical um, for quite a while into that illness. You know, how... Can I extend my life? Um, How do I improve the quality of my life? Um, Is there anything that I can do to um, keep death at bay? Um, Often they become their own internist, for example, or their own hospitalist. Uh, They are, you know, engaged in doing whatever they can to um, deal adequately with the medical issues. So uh, the more uh, subtle and existential dimensions of an individual's life are right there under the surface. Uh, Yet, frankly speaking, I I think that what is uh, foremost in most people's mind is how do I deal with the physical realities that I'm confronted with right now? You know, when that um, is that level is addressed adequately, uh, when the physical symptoms are uh, addressed, then that gives an individual the the room to address um, the relational and spiritual dimensions, and to you know if those dimensions are uh, explored adequately and are are actualized or fulfilled, Um, then the existential uh, questions become uh, more in the foreground. Yeah, I mean, I think 
from my point of view, one of the most important uh, dimensions in the experience that people have in a life-limiting or a catastrophic illness is how do you create the conditions for an individual to find meaning in their lives, to have um, deep questions at least explored, perhaps not answered, but uh, explored, to provide the context for uh, a life review to happen where a person can, in, you know, sit back and really look at the good they've done in the world, what they've accomplished, what has been meaningful for them. And then the rate, relational dimension is um, very critical. How do you create the safety and the means for an individual to ask forgiveness, uh, for forgiveness, to, to be forgiven, to offer forgiveness, and, and to forgive themselves? How do you create the conditions to express gratitude? How do you um, foster the, the uh, ground where a sense of gratefulness for uh, the richness of one's life can uh, be explored? And um, how do you express love? And how do you bring those, you know, into the, the room with the dying person so love can be directly expressed? And then, you know, the final phase really is the, the ex existential or the transcendent phase. And, and that has to do with um, questions about life, death, afterlife. You know, how do we um, come to the realization that dying is a time where the most profound developmental phase in the human life can be fulfilled? So, um, you know, as I said in, in my experience, um, uh, it's, it, it might be that I'm very pragmatic, but this is, you know, through the filter of my own experience and pragmatism, um, you know, unless we're able to deal skillfully with the symptoms uh, associated with dying, which could include pain, nausea, all kinds of other GI problems, uh, mental confusion and such, um, and also address uh, the fears associated with dying that are uh, pragmatically based, like the fear of pain, which is often foremost in people's mind. Um, it's Difficult to get down to, you know, the sort of next layer, which is, you know, the psychosocial or the relational and the spiritual and existential. You said several things in there that I found extremely helpful and interesting, and I want to try to tease out a couple of them. One is that you referred to death as a final developmental phase, and I've never heard that before, talking about our death as a phase of development. What did you mean by that? Well... Throughout the lifespan, there are phase shifts through which we pass from the time of our birth to um, our childhood, through our experience of adolescence, uh, through the first phase of uh, adult maturation, which includes, you know, post-adolescence or adolescent sexuality to um, uh, the experience of, uh, you know, birth or relationality. Uh, having a vocation, being a sort of contributing adult in the world, um, and then going into adult two, which is a you know very profound stage of maturation, which is a, a kind of mitzvah or gift that's been given to our generation, where uh, the lifespan has been increased. Mary Catherine Bateson writes about this in her book, Composing a Further Life. And then into the, the phase of um, uh, chronos or uh, into uh, being an elder in society. And finally, into the journey for those of us who have the opportunity of, uh, to experience um, uh, the dying process, not just, you know, in terms of a, a, a brief catastrophic moment like uh, dying of a 
heart attack or stroke or, you know, in some kind of violent incident, but where we actually have time in the journey of living and dying um, to go through what is called uh, the stage of active dying, which is the final phase. And it is in that experience where one, uh, in a longer uh, uh, span of time, has the opportunity to, um, in a you know, sort of challenging sense, to deal with the psychophysical symptoms, but in the blessed sense, to really reflect back on one's life with the prospect of one's mortality vividly in, in, uh, uh, engaged. And this can be the most fruitful and profound uh, time of an individual's life, a real uh, experience of um, deepening of also fundamentally of transcendence when the physical coil and even the, the binds of our relationality, you know, become looser and looser through uh, time being. And an individual has the opportunity to um, uh, look back through the, the whole sort of deep view of a life and to recognize they're in this kind of um, space, an interworld between living and dying where the veil is very thin. And it is in that kind of interface uh, um, where you can sort of look into the next world and you're looking into the world that has been your past. And um, you're able to, uh, in a way, uh, open up to a much uh, bigger vision of who you really are. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, people have heard this term, a conscious death. And I'm curious, in this developmental phase of dying, what might it mean for that to be a conscious passage? Well, I, I think there are quite a few uh, features that uh, we talk about in relation to conscious dying. You know, um, but I think this is a, a question that is a little more difficult to uh, address than most people understand. For example, um, uh, there are people who are very um, actualized, if you will, awake, aware, uh, sensitive, uh, wise. Um, But the biological process of uh, actually being consciously engaged, that is really uh, awake in the conventional sense, um, uh, might not be as we know it if you know what I'm saying. In other words, you know, dying, um, in the latter phases of dying, individuals uh, go through uh, an experience, what can I say, of uh, unbinding that um, uh, takes them into a state, you know, where they're in a kind of interworld, where they're not conscious as we conventionally know it. So conscious dying doesn't always mean being awake to the phenomenal world. We do not know, Tammy, what is actually going on on the internal level of the individual. We don't know uh, because um, even with individuals who come back from near-death experiences, or uh, individuals who move sort of in and out of consciousness is, is usually the case in, the, in sort of a wave fashion as the dying process ha- is happening. We don't really know what the subjective experience is, what in fact is going on. And I, I think we're, you know, there's some research that... Uh, Richie Davidson and others are engaged in to try to understand what's happening at that threshold. But it's not been, you know, sufficiently objectified. So, you know, when we talk about conscious dying, it might be that um, uh, the latter phases of this journey into uh, the death moment, if there is such a thing actually as a, a death moment, by the way, but that this journey through the dying and after death 
uh, process um, uh, includes a phase of unconsciousness from the perspective of an outside observer. But I would like to say it, it's more something more like uh, wise dying, if you will. I, I, I don't know exactly the words uh, that could characterize it because I haven't been asked this question in the way that you've asked it before. But it has to do with um, a dying person having uh, the wherewithal to actually have a metacognitive perspective uh, on the experience of dying itself, to have um, to be uh, be in the process in a way that they're not a toy of the process. They're not in a reaction to the process of letting go as the body and, and the mind are, are letting go. Um, that they they've actualized some capacity within their own mental continuum, which um, allows them to feel very free and spacious and non-dual, if if you will, in a a, a uh, very um, uh, I don't know exactly how you know I can give the words for this, but. You know, it's this deep openness or a sense of great receptivity to things exactly as they are, you know, as the waves of pain or confusion come and go, as the letting go or the unbinding process is happening. And it might not be that the individual is, you know, articulating uh, wisely upon their situation, but rather that um, there's a kind of field, uh, not only within them, but it's sort of around them as well, um, that has, that is characterized by a a kind of luminosity or openness, um, which goes right into the dying process. You know, I want to just mention um, Ivan Ilyich's uh, Ilyich's extraordinary novel, the, uh, sorry, Tolstoy's extraordinary novel, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, where um, uh, you finally, in the 12th small chapter of this very uh, extraordinary novel, um, you finally uh, begin to understand, though Ivan Ilyich was just a Russian bourgeois mixed up guy. Um, In fact, uh, even in his own uh, uh, field of uh, delusion, he experienced non-duality. He uh, went through the sort of uh, experience of complete liberation in the ultimate phase of the dying process. I think Tolstoy did something that I have uh, really not read anywhere in, you know, in any uh, other novel or account of characterizing this uh, moment of death as indeed liberative. And um, so I would, you know, from the outside point of view, Ivan Ilyich didn't look like he was conscious, but from his subjective experience, um, he was. He was fully conscious. He transcended pain, and ultimately he transcended death. Now, this is, whole topic is very interesting to me, and of course we can't get inside the dying person's experience to know exactly what it's like. But here you are, you're on the outside, sitting at the bedside, but you're in a, a, a meditative state, a state of deep spiritual care. And I'm wondering what your experience is when somebody's going through a process that we could call a liberating death. And I mean, I know it's a little weird comparing this kind of death to that kind of death, but I'm curious, you you come out of an experience like that and you feel to yourself, oh my God, that was such a, a beautiful death, such a liberating death. What you experienced as the caretaker compared to, let's say, other kinds of deaths? Well, you know, Tammy, I don't want to romanticize uh, 
the dying process or death. Very good. I think that um, uh, if the truth be told, most of us who work in this field, um, most of us have observed uh, the moment of death as liberative. But um, the time preceding the moment of death often is difficult. So, you know, um, death is a pretty gritty experience for many individuals. And, you know, even the description of um, the Karmapa's death, where there were all kinds of uh, uh, sort of cascade of symptoms, that were so terrible, which he, you know, in fact, um, related to in a, you know, an extraordinarily noble way, but you wouldn't wish this on anybody. What is like someone once said, and I think whether I heard it or read it, I don't remember, it was so many years ago, that it's as though the sort of all the bad karma of uh, the West um, was present in his dying process as though he were burning it up for all of us. And he did that in a noble way. But still, you could say that was liberation with some pretty heavy traces. And um, one wouldn't wish that on anyone, frankly. So, um, as I said, I think probably... 99% of the deaths of those of us who've worked in the field that that we have witnessed are deaths that are characterized by um, uh, an absence of symptoms. It's as though, you know, as you're getting to the so-called death point or the place where there's no longer a next inhalation, um, in general, most individuals, um, there's a quality of... uh, Spaciousness. It's not like, uh, you know, the fingers are clinging at the doorway between the worlds. By that time, the fingers have been peeled away from the door jam, so to speak. But in fact, um, you know, Tammy, there are, you know, maybe the most uh, phenomenal death that I've witnessed was the most difficult uh, death. And that was uh, a woman who had a neurological disorder uh, and um, was becoming progressively disabled and had tried to take her own life a number of times through taking an overdose. And um, she finally succeeded uh, in, uh, you know, taking an overdose sufficient for um, herself to not uh, be resuscitated, but not adequate for her to die. And um, we were brought to her bedside uh, several days after she had taken all these sleeping pills, all these barbiturates, and she was in a vegetative state. Um, I walked into her room. She was completely chaotic. She had just vomited on herself. Uh, she was being cleaned up by the hospice nurse and a student of mine. She was um, sweating profusely. I mean, it was not a good thing. And the nurse had worked with me um, uh, before with a number of patients, and she suggested that perhaps I should just sit with the woman uh, as this might be something she would want. And so uh, my student and The nurse left the room, and I sat down next to the bed of this woman who was dying, and I said to her, uh, as she was chaotically and rapidly breathing, I said, dear so-and-so, you are loved by many people, and we completely support you in letting go. And then I said to her, thank you for everything you've given to so many of us. And then on every exhalation after that, for 20 exhales, I said to her as I was breathing with her, I said, yes. Just with a tremendous uh, sense of love, uh, tuning into her. And within a very few breaths, 
of doing this, her breath became more normalized. And in 20 exhales later, she died. And it was um, really quite extraordinary. I, I then did POA practice with her. Can you explain that? And which is consciousness transference at the time of death, a practice I learned from Chagdu Tukar Rinpoche. Um, and then I sat with her and then invited um, her uh, partner and the nurse and my student into the room. And I will tell you, um, I was a little blown away. I, I really, uh, you know, I don't know if my presence had some influence on um, her experience or whether it was co-arising my presence and her experience flowed into a unity. Um, I didn't know if causality was there or not, but I was deeply aware that um, uh there was a moment of such profound attunement where I felt she was free. And I also, and you know, when I look back upon this, Tammy, it was, um, I thought it was a great privilege to share that moment with her, uh, that perhaps um, she would have, journeyed on for a few more hours in, in chaos and confusion. But in fact, she, uh, she was able to regularize or somehow, if you want to call it normalize, through uh, the sense of, of love between us. Mm-hmm. So it's not a death I would wish on anybody. It's certainly, um, you know was a wake-up call for me to think that suicide is an easy way out. I think uh, those days from the time that she took the barbiturates until her, her final few, uh, uh, her final uh, respirations were, were not days that many of us would want. But in fact, those last 15 breaths were breaths um, of freedom. If I look at it from my perspective, of course, one can't really know what hers was, except there was a felt sense of things, and there was also, um, uh, she was not in the chaotic state that she was in up until that the point where I could feel that attunement happening. Uh, the the question I have is you you mentioned POA practice and you defined it as this transfer of consciousness. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you actually did, what you visualized, how that works? Well, it's you know uh, it's also another way of calling POA um, other than consciousness transfer to the time of death is the it's also called the compassionate hook. And it's where um, you hook your consciousness into the consciousness of the individual who is uh, immediately deceased or can be deceased for a while, which is visualized to be in the heart area of the uh, deceased individual, and you hook your consciousness into theirs. And then um, through visualization and uh, breath, and um, as well uh, a, a phoneme that you utter. Uh, and by the way, there's, um, this practice is on the Sounds True uh, uh, DVD, which you, you all um, have that, that I, I did for you some years ago. Um, the consciousness is then propelled by virtue of the visualization of the practitioner through the central channel uh, of the deceased individual into a visualization of um, Amitayas. And this is all described actually in the... Um, yeah, being with dying. CD, sorry. It's a, it's a very powerful practice. I was extremely lucky to um, do this, uh, learn this practice through uh, the late... Chagdu Tuka Rinpoche, whom uh, I practiced with from, I think, 1980 or 81, uh, 
over a number of years. And he knew about the work that I was doing with dying people and felt that um, one of the most important practices that people in this field can do, those who are caring for the dying, and I would suggest not just healthcare professionals, but all of us, is this practice of POA or consciousness transference. Now, Joan, a couple of times you mentioned the moment of death as the so-called moment of death, or if there is such a thing as a moment of death. And, you know, when you said that, I thought of a medical show where they say, you know, declare the moment of death, and it's a time that then is written down in the person's medical records. So clearly, the medical world thinks there's a moment of death when the heart stops, etc. What is your sense of this? Well, you know, um, I... I have to say that this notion of a moment of death is not actually, uh, you know, a moment of death is not actually in, uh, in medicine per se. You know, our organs die at different velocities. Um, uh, brain death can happen, but all kinds of stuff can go on to help our organs to keep going, even though we might not, you know, be aware that that's happening to us and and such. Um, uh, So I think it's kind of a dramatic notion that we think that there's a kind of moment of death. But I think death is a little bit more subtle, and it's you know, I'm a Zen practitioner, um, but I've been engaged in Tibetan studies and practice for many decades. And um, I think the Tibetans have, you know, explored this in a way that is quite important for us to uh, consider. And that um, not only from the point of view of Western science that, you know, there's not an actual moment of death. Uh, I think uh, the Harvard definition on this is pretty clear I don't remember off the top of my head the particularities, but, you know, whomever is interested can look it up. But also there are what um, is described in Tibetan text as the inner dissolutions. And those dissolutions uh, are uh, having to do with um, states of uh, or processes of the mind uh, that are characterized by profound clarity and also uh, profound bliss, which uh, unify and uh, at the in the dying process through the phase of inner dissolutions, and um, give rise to a, a moment of unconsciousness, and then uh, what is called the, the the presence of the pure light of our liberated uh, mental substrate or the pure light or dawning of our primary awareness. And, you know, we can't scientifically validate any of this at this time. Um, There's uh, a lot of speculation with regards to what is the subjective experience in this, uh, you know, interworld. But I think we have to be very open to the possibilities um, of what might happen. And, and take the speculations or the insights of these uh, yogis, you know, into uh, into the realm of possibility, and not just say, "Oh, you're dead, you're dead." I mean, I have no idea myself, Tammy, of what happens after the moment of so-called uh, death when the next inhalation does not happen. But I'm interested in the uh, informed speculations of those who have uh, done, you know, deep uh, inner work in training their minds uh, to look into, you know, the realms of uh, consciousness that most of us do not have access to. Mm -hmm. From talking to you, it seems that the part of the dying process that you have a great deal of confidence and knowledge about is actually what helps from the perspective of sitting at the bedside, what's helpful to somebody. And you've made some references, helping someone feel forgiveness, 
knowing that they're forgiven. And you talked about helping that person feel gratitude. And, and I'm wondering if you can say more, and this is kind of a crude way to say it, but what are the do's and don'ts when you're sitting at the bedside? Well, I think the first thing that um, is really uh, important to uh, look at is um, our own capacity to have a mind and heart that is steady enough to be able to uh, recognize um, the truth of um, what's going on around us. And um, this has to do with our experience of, um, you know, mental training. Um, you know, how many filters do we have between us and the person who could be, well, you know, suffering or uh, dying? Um, uh, are we able to really perceive uh, their experience uh, clearly? Um, are we, you know, suffering from uh, uh, burnout or uh, secondary trauma or pathological altruism or, um, uh, you know, other ways that limit our capacity to really see clearly. Um, so things, you know, practices that really train the mind, like focused attention or concentration practices that uh, emphasize the relationship between equanimity and compassion. Um, uh cultivating uh, the investigative faculty within our own mental continuum so that we, we have the ability to have insight around values, uh, around altruism and, and pain and, and uh, the experience of suffering, what death means in our lives, uh, the truth of impermanence, um, what our priorities are and such, um, the development of our capacity through insight of our uh, capacities um, to, to have a, a metacognitive perspective. Um, you know, another practice that I think is really critical is our ability to um, presence pain and suffering without personalizing or, or consoling, um, being able to really listen uh, deeply to uh, what the dying person is going through in terms of both the explicit and implicit level of their experience. You know, and I'm just, just focusing right now on practice, and I, I want to break out something in a minute for you, which has to do with components of compassion. But um, uh, another sort of set of practices that I think are, are really important is the the development of uh, pro-social mental qualities, including empathy and altruism and kindness, uh, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, what in Buddhism we call the last four things I mentioned, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity are, are the Brahma Viharas. There are many other pro-social mental qualities, and, you know, including forgiveness, including gratefulness about which we were speaking earlier. And then there's a set of practices related to um, uh, us becoming familiar with the psychophysical aspects of sickness, dying, and death. And these are uh, skillful means that utilize visualization and imagination. And then perhaps the most difficult of all practices for us to accomplish, because it's more of a bottom-up process, um, is uh, that of open presence or um, uh, choiceless awareness, uh, and that is uh, a developing a uh, quality of uh, attention which is broad-based, which um, is panoramic, uh, receptive, that's, that's fundamentally uh, non-judgmental. Um, and there are... Uh, certain benefits that I think are really important for us to uh, consider uh, in terms of, you know, enhancing our capacity as caregivers. That is, um, and I'll, I'll break this down in another way in just a minute, but, um, you know, looking at the, the role of our ability to actually be able to perceive accurately what an individual is going through and our, also our own uh, uh, re responses to this takes a great deal of attentional balance. 
In other words, are we able to have a uh, an attention that is uh, sustaining and vivid and stable and effortless, a kind of non-judgmental attention, attention that is not reactive, that is not um, uh, contracting uh, in relation to aversiveness or grasping in terms of our desire for things to, you know, go another way. Um, uh, meditation practice has a very profound effect on our capacity in these areas. And another area is emotional balance. Um, you know, I spoke earlier just a few minutes ago about um, pro-social mental states. And, um, you know, this has to do with, you know, us actively cultivating those mental qualities which are, are wholesome um, and uh, which are nourishing for us and uh, also nourishing for others. Then another area which I think is really critical um, uh, but is probably not explored so, uh, so much but I, I think it's really important in relation to uh, the cultivation of uh, both attentional balance and emotional balance is our ability to have um, control of our cognitive uh, continuum. And that is, can we guide um, our thought and behavior in accord with our intention? You know, our motivation is really important, but sometimes we, get, we have really good motivation but we get way off track. And it's important for, then, uh, for us to then learn to actually override our um, habitual responses and, and learn how to downregulate, learn how to not go into uh, uh, react, habitual reactivity, but to say, you know, I don't need to go there today. Uh, another has to do with um, mental pliability or mental flexibility, our ability to really be able to, you know, shift our mental state. Um, and you know, I've seen the Dalai Lama do this so uh, brilliantly where he'll be, you know, with a Tibetan refugee, somebody who's just, you know, come over the frontier under great uh, duress, and there will be tears in his eyes, and two seconds later, you know, he's in a scientific conversation. That kind of mental pliability is really important. Another, you know, thing about cognitive control is our capacity to actually reappraise situations. You know, instead of saying, oh, this is how it always is, or, what, you know, this is terrible, to um, be able to see things in a light which is more liberated. And then, of course, there are the um, uh, uh, aspects of mental training related to health and resilience or hardiness, um, where, of course, the, you know, mental training in, in the best of circumstances, you know, reduces stress and enhances um, our, our uh, immune response. And I think we don't have uh, in our culture, you know, an adequate idea of um, how plastic or pliable the, not only the mind is, but also the brain. That the, the brain, um, uh, the actual structure of the brain uh, will change um, depending on um, whether or not we're expanding or strengthening certain circuits and weakening those who are uh, circuits that are, uh, we don't engage so much. This is really important. That, you know, when we're speaking about mental training, particularly, you know, around an experience um, where there usually is so much emotional, oh, so much emotion, there's such uh, mental perturbation, are we, in fact, um, able to um, use this as a context for the practice of strengthening uh, circuits? Um, that are more affiliative, less aversive, less threat-based, less reward-based, and so on. And we can do that based on our intentionality. So, you know, I want to just, for a moment, uh, if you don't mind, Tammy, um, talk about uh, a kind of model which has... Um, uh, I've been working on, and I, I, you know, I've been at the Library of Congress now in this 
protected space as a uh, distinguished visiting scholar uh, here in Washington. It's been wonderful, so I could have some time to really think about things. And I want to talk a little bit about um, some of what I think are essential components of compassion. And um, uh, they're reflected in what I just spoke about in terms of attentional balance and so forth, but in a, a, a slightly expanded way. And that is that I call it the AEB axis. Uh, that is an axis where there's attentional balance. It's a, kind of like a vertical axis where there's mental stability sufficient that we're able to recognize suffering. And emotional balance, which is a kind of horizontal axis um, uh, where um, we're involved in um, uh, mental qualities which are fundamentally positive or uh, prosocial. And these would include um, qualities that also entail the actual positive regard for others, including kindness, which is a very um, proactive or active dimension. Now, um, one of the things that uh, uh, about this model, um, there's a piece in this model that came to my attention through Tanya Singer and her work on empathy. Um, that I'd like to mention, and, and that is that um, uh, Tanya Singer was at a small meeting with the Dalai Lama, uh, Richie Davidson, Amishi Jha, neuroscientists were there, also Mathieu Ricard, uh, Joseph Goldstein, and myself. And um, I pointed out uh, during this meeting that um, many uh, caregivers speak about compassion fatigue. And that I felt this was uh, not an appropriate term, that it was not compassion that fatigued others, in fact. It was empathy. And then Tanya Singer pointed out something very interesting to me and to the group, um, which I, I just want to mention here. And that is um, she had noted that um, in her study of individuals um, who suffer from an autism-related disorder called alexithymia, um, these individuals have a very low capacity for empathy, but this is also, uh, 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 these are individuals who also suffer from a low capacity for interoceptivity. That is to say that they're not really um, uh, attuned or uh, in touch with their own visceral processes. And what she was to learn is that the uh, uh, brain circuits associated with empathy are essentially the same brain circuits associated with interoceptivity, our, our ability to be attuned to, to our visceral processes. And um, this is, you know, the sort of our sensory somatic functions. And so I began to think about, you know, all of the caregivers, the physicians and nurses that uh, I've worked with for over 40 years now, um, and realized that, you know, often there was a very deep disconnect between mind and body. And that disconnect, the more stress they experienced, the disconnection was stronger and stronger. And it, in fact, was accompanied by uh, feelings of, uh, of empathic uh, over-arousal leading to personal distress and ultimately to withdrawal or to kind of numbness. So um, I put this uh, element of interoceptivity into the model of, uh, you know, the components of compassion, that is, um, somatosensory attunement, feeling it was really important for us to um, uh, be attuned uh, to our own somatic processes, because this would prime um, our experience of empathy. And... Um, uh, allow us to have both affective and a cognitive attunement to the, to the suffering of those who are around us. So that's the, the, the content in what is called the AEB axis, the uh, attentional balance axis and the emotional balance axis, which includes prosociality, introceptivity, and empathy. The second axis is the cognitive axis. I call it the II Axis, and this has to do with two cognitive dimensions. Um, one of those dimensions is the dimension of insight. That is um, our insight um, uh, uh, that allows us 
to actually be aware of ourselves um, up-regulating so we know to down-regulate, know not, not to get either overexcited or over-aroused or overstimulated so that we go into a state of personal distress. Um, this is actually partnered with um, a, another uh, ability uh, or, or dimension of insight, and that is um, to actually be able to distinguish self from other. And I know this is um, uh, counterintuitive because mostly in the non-dual state we're supposed to, you know, uh, we're advised to be in this non-dual state with all beings and things. But in fact, um, that's on the level of, you would say, the, the ultimate or the absolute. But from the relative point of view, it's important to understand uh, that uh, at some level I am not you. You know, at another level, I am you, but from one point of view, I am not you. And that distinction um, is important because it allows us to not go into a state of over-arousal and of into personal distress. It's also important from the point of view of insight to recognize the truth of impermanence. And uh, another dimension of the II axis is to um, uh, be uh, related to impermanence is to actually be uh, at, uh, relatively at ease with the experience of uncertainty. The second dimension in the II axis is intention. And so we have insight and intention. And here... Um, what is aroused is the intention to actually transform suffering. So this distinguishes compassion from empathy. Um, in the experience of empathy, uh, there is not necessarily uh, engaged the intention to transform suffering. Rather, it's a, a cognitive and affective attunement that's isomorphic. And um, as a result of that, um, unless we regulate the experience of empathy, um, we can go easily into empathic over-arousal and into personal distress. And I want to refer here to the work of Nancy Eisenberg, who's a social psychologist who's, who's uh, done really important work in this area of concerning empathic over-arousal. So the intention to transform suffering is really critical in this whole uh, conjuring of uh, facets or dimensions or valences that arise in the very complex uh, experience of, of compassion. And the third um, axis is the physical axis, um, and that is that um, uh, what the neuroscientists have seen uh, as the, one of the elements is that distinguishes the neural substrates of uh, individuals who are experiencing compassion is distinct from empathy is that an individual who's experiencing compassion um, has lit up the premotor cortex. In other words, um, there's the potential action uh, for transforming suffering. That is, you know, the brain knows sometimes even before the mind knows. So that there's the potential for embodiment there. Now, uh, Tammy, there's a fourth axis here, and um, this has to do with uh, uh, a motivational circuit in um, uh, the brain called uh, the reward circuit or the seeking circuit. And is that um, from one point of view, there's the deep aspiration to transform suffering, right? That's there, and we know that through uh, the premotor cortex and intentionality that to save all sentient beings from suffering, which is the great vow of the bodhisattvas. But from another point of view, we cannot be attached to outcome. Um, we really have to be able to uh, let go of uh, any desire for uh, a particular outcome. Uh, no gaining idea, as Suzuki Roshi has, has called it. Um, because... Uh, if we're seeking uh, an outcome um, that is, uh, we think is desirable, 
um, we might begin to start manipulating the individual's in, uh, experience in a way that is truly unhelpful. So we're working in a paradoxical situation, which again, um, I think is related, you know, if we're going to go into brain anatomy, into, you know, to the insular cortex. Um, here we are, on one hand, deeply uh, dedicated to the transformation of the individual suffering, which is an essential component of compassion, and by the same token, um, holding uh, our heart and mind open to um, uh, the truth that we might not get the outcome we want, and we have to really um, presence uh, emergence or not be attached to outcomes. So that's, you know, these are four uh, axes that are uh, uh, interwoven, I think, in a way that I'm just, you know, beginning to understand a little bit about these axes. Um, The AEB axis, the II, uh, cognitive axis, the physical axis, and then no seeking, no reward. Well, I know that's a lot to hold, um, but I'm just sitting in my office at the Library of Congress consuming uh, journal articles in social psychology, neuroscience, and also looking at my own experience of many decades of working with suffering and trying to, um, uh, uh, what can I say, develop a model that is um, uh, has as you know, is as granular as possible of something that we don't understand very well, and that is compassion. It's wonderful, Joan. It's wonderful to hear you talk about it and really a a kind of neuroscience of compassion, bringing in recent discoveries to help us understand this feeling, this act that feels so spontaneous being compassionate, but it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that, as you're describing. Now, I want to ask you just two more questions. One is that in addition to the Sounds True learning series on Being with Dying, you have a book called Being with Dying, and the subtitle is Cultivating Compassion and Fearlessness in the Presence of Death. And I'm wondering what you could say to us about fearlessness related to our dying. You know, um, first of all, uh, I think fear is a kind of an ally. I, I don't want to make it out to be all bad. Uh, I think what fear does is it wakes us up and it also, you know, assists us in really um, reordering our our priorities. Um, But there are also um, uh, a number of aspects of fear that are problematic. And, you know, in Buddhism, we say that there are... uh, four great gifts. You know, one is the gift of uh, giving material things, you know, um, uh, food, shelter, money, so people do not suffer as much. Uh, The second is the the gift of uh, giving consolation, you know, uh, psycho-spiritual support, uh, love, kindness. Uh, the third is the gift of the Dharma, giving the teachings as a, a means of liberation. Um, the fourth, however, I think is the most precious and probably the least well understood, um, uh, but it is uh, the, the, the deepest of all gifts, and that is giving no fear, giving no fear. So um, there are three uh, fundamental uh, fear responses, fight, flight, or freeze. And the fight response in terms of the experience of caregiving is often um, expressed in terms of moral outrage. Uh, The flight um, is often expressed in in the caregiving experience in terms of abandonment or withdrawal from the patient. And the freeze dimension of fear um, 
is often expressed in terms of simple numbness. And we see, you know, fear is, uh, uh, I don't understand it that well. You know, I've gotten more granular around compassion. Um, And one of the things I want to study uh, uh, more is the threat circuit and the fear circuit. Uh, because partly because uh, it, it's been, you know, something that's been a bit in my life. I think it's in most of our lives. I've also seen it in relation to fear of the unknown or fear of pain or fear of loss of identity, um, which is uh, typical uh, for dying people to go through. I also saw it... Uh, very much in working in the prison system, which I did for six years, um, working with men on death row and in maximum security, um, where flight um, uh, and freeze and fight were were very much a part of um, the experience of uh, of you know, being in uh, a maximum security facility. So I think fear, though, is something that is prevalent throughout um, our global society. I mean, you know, the word terror uh, has become one of the most used terms uh, in um, global discourse. And that filters, you know, right into our psyche, uh, right into our media. Um, right into the lives of our children. And I feel that we've not really um, unpacked it sufficiently, and I I can't say that I myself have uh, given it um, sufficient discernment to say more than what I'm saying here, except that it's the the next frontier that I personally want to look at uh, uh, because I think it is a, a virus in the world today. As a caregiver, sitting with somebody and wanting to give them this profound gift, the gift of no fear, how might I do that? Tammy, this is really the question of how um, we have worked with our own past, our mind, and our heart. I mean, this is why practice is so terribly important for us. Um, uh, If we are sitting there without equanimity and compassion strong back, soft front, fully engaged, but rather strong front, soft back, um, I think we're um, putting ourselves into a situation um, that is not generative or helpful for ourselves and for the person with whom we're sitting. So part of the work has to do with um, how do we develop equanimity and compassion, And I think the most powerful way to do that, in fact, is to um, um, do meditation, (laughs) frankly. You know, it is um, something I feel that all uh, healthcare professionals uh, should engage in the training of their own mental continuum. I feel that all children should um, be trained in pro-social mental qualities and attentional balance. And I think this will make an enormous difference as well in how we um, approach not only our dying and those who are dying, but also in how we live. And Joan, just one final question. I know uh, preparing to talk with you, I spent some time with your Being With Dying materials And I felt that at those moments preparing to talk to you, death was right there in front of me. I was thinking about my own death, reflecting on death, but that most of the time death recedes into the background and I'm not thinking about it. I'm, I'm deeply engaged in life. It's the furthest thing from my mind. And yet clearly a big part of your being with dying work is helping people understand the importance of living quote unquote in the presence of death. And I'm curious what you have to, to say about this as a, as a final answer. How, how important is it that we live with an awareness of death, and how do we keep that awareness alive when we're in the midst of the 
busyness and the uh, richness of our life. We're not thinking about dying at all. I think that one of the most important things that we can do as individuals is to come to uh, the realization of the truth of impermanence. And the contemplation of our mortality, um, this limited lifespan, um, has a very profound consequence of bringing us into the present moment. And um, it's not just the tragedy that our lifespan is limited. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, as somebody who has worked with this issue of mortality for, you know, a year, two years, 40 years, whatever, but, uh, you know, a long enough time um, where it's never far from my conscious awareness. It helps me to appreciate this moment, the miracle of this moment, this present moment as it is. But another thing it has done is to make me not just appreciative, but um, it makes me want to use my life well. And it reminds me of the evening chant that we uh, listen to every night during the time of intensive uh, meditation practice in our Zen temple. And that chant, the words go as follows. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. Do not squander your life. That's a good thing to be reminded of every evening after a a day of meditation, right before you go to bed. How precious this life is, and let us not squander it. So that's a seed. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Roshi Joan Halifax. Joan Halifax has created a six-session program with Sounds True called Being with Dying, and it contains many guided practices and meditations that you can do at the bedside to be helpful with someone who is in the dying process, and also as a way to cultivate compassion and fearlessness in your life in a total way. Joan, thanks for being with us. Much appreciation and good luck with your work at the Library of Congress. Thank you so much, Tammy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.